0: The Spin Off Podcast Network. Tired of diesel buses? Want more cycle lanes? Or bus lanes? Which projects do you want Auckland Transport to work on first? They need your opinion. So head to haveyoursay.at.govt.nz forward slash RLTP to do just that. Consultation closes on 17 June. Get in quick. Welcome to The Good Citizen, a podcast featuring people with good ideas to make our cities better. My name is Jeremy Hanson, and this podcast is brought to you by Britomart, the nine block precinct in downtown Auckland, where good citizens and good ideas are always welcome. Today, my guest is Jacqueline Paul. She's a landscape architect and a lecturer at Unitech with a particular interest in housing and urban development and how Auckland and New Zealand's shortage of good housing is disproportionately disadvantaging, disadvantaging Maori in particular. Jackie Namihikiakui,
1: Kia ora, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy.
0: It's a real pleasure to have you here. Now, we were talking just before we started recording about the work you've been doing, um, some of the research you've been doing. You're on Auckland's Youth Advisory Panel, um, but this also takes in some of your academic work, where you've been doing a survey of Rangatahi Māori's aspirations for housing what those aspirations mean and what they mean for the housing crisis that we now find ourselves in. Can you talk about how that research project came to be and what your findings were from it?
1: Yeah, I guess just to provide a I guess overview and a scope of the project of where it fits in. So under the National Science Challenge, one of the research streams uh, funded by Building Research New Zealand, uh, there's a stream which is called Māori Housing. and um, We were lucky to, uh, I guess, work on a small project, uh, looking at the, well, trying to understand, you know, what are rangatahi Māori aspirations and what are their visions for the, you know, I guess, future of housing. About uh, really understanding the realities at the moment and kind of having that discussion around home ownership, you know. Is that the dream anymore? I mean, how that shifts. So, yeah, it's been really awesome to work across, I guess, the country, uh, up in Kaikohe, uh, in Tāmaki Makoto and down in Dunedin uh, with some fellow rangatahi researchers. So, yeah, you know, led by rangatahi Māori for rangatahi Māori uh, and what an opportunity to be a part of that Papa.
0: You've been working in this area for a while, but I wondered if there were still outcomes from this research that surprised you in terms of the rangatahi Māori attitudes that you're analysing.
1: Yeah, I think firstly was like being able to do something like this that hasn't been done before has uh, been really awesome to be a part of. Uh, and being young, young Māori uh, in Tāmaki is very different to what it means in uh, Kaikohen and Dunedin. And so I guess some of the key learnings is you know they're very still optimistic in kaikohe uh, around you know they've still got the, a lot of them still live in uh at home with the, the young maori that we were working with uh, but they you know they're still very aspirational and more optimistic than some of us down here in tamaki wikato yeah and i think it's like what's been interesting is that here in tamaki some of the rangatahi maori we've been working with that the you know the i guess it's big idea of housing crisis has actually had a huge impact on us where it's just so far out of reach now that it's just kind of you know we kind of lost that dream and that hope uh and then of home
0: ownership you mean of
1: home ownership it's just so you know so far out of reach um it's more like we've shifted well some from from the kōrero that we've had is that you know travel is kind of having the dream now because it's realistic really Uh,
0: But nobody sees home ownership as even a possibility.
1: Well, there was a diverse group that we worked with. There was some on the other end of this age spectrum. We're around 30. They had young families and still they were struggling. Uh, But even the younger ones, you know, it's just just this big thing is we cost a lot of money to own a home. It's just we're still, you know, living at home with our parents. And so we're kind of in that notion of being comfortable uh, and realistic. Just being lucky to have a roof over our head, really. That's the reality.
0: What are the spillover effects do you think of not being able to have that aspiration? Because some people might say, well, big deal, you just rent. Um, But you're talking about this as as if it's um, got much more serious implications for the you that you were speaking to?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think housing plays such a significant role in terms of society and our whānau for future generations. It's a sense of stability, it's a place of belonging, um, and really grounded in a space where you're able to grow as a person but as a whānau. And so, if you're already being, sh- you know, you don't have access to that, what does that look like? Uh, I guess, you know, later on, there's those conversations about instability, insecurity, all these massive picture things that really affect your well-being.
0: These are the things I guess we don't often see when we talk about the housing crisis. The housing crisis in the mainstream media narrative focuses on prices, um, the number of units we're short, and also homelessness. But you're talking about a broad range of people in the middle – who may not be on the streets, but who are suffering suffering acute housing stress in some cases.
1: Yeah, it's so much more than just the physical structure. You know, it's the well-being aspect, it's your mental health, the um, instability in terms of financial security, just a place to be. Like, it's crazy, you know, when, you know, some kids still were living in cars. Like, that is instability and dysfunction in terms of a family, and that's not how it should be. You know, kids should be able to go to school and come home to a home, not to, you know, living in the back of a van.
0: How do you think as a society we allowed it to get this bad?
1: I think one part in terms of the spaces that I work in is allowing for voices to be valued, Um, experience and realities to be valued. Like, I know we tend to measure a lot of economics into the housing and all these things. Okay, like, that's one part of it. But when are we going to allow, you know, people's stories to be valued where we're responding, yes, to evidence-based data, but also to qualitative um, processes which can inform that as well? They need to be valued, um, but that's just not how it is.
0: It's interesting that you talk about this work that you've been doing because – um, it seems like it's potentially revolutionary that these voices are now, they have a pathway to um, be heard by the people that are making decisions in the city. And, and it's terrible that that's kind of a new thing, isn't it?
1: I know. And yes, it's, we already have all the statistics. We have all the statistics in the world. Cool, we already know though, but nothing's been done. So when we start allowing impact, you know, impact approaches where voices are, are shared, are listened to, are valued and responded to. These are the needs of people. Uh, and when we can start shifting to those human-centred approaches, and that's wha- no whatever, you know, focus on human, as opposed to given this, I guess, financial oversight more value than the person. It's crazy.
0: Do you see things changing?
1: I think we're in an interesting time in a climate where that's shifting slowly, It'd be nice if it was a lot faster, more responsive. Uh, but, you know, that's systemic processes and some of the things. But I think, yeah, why not continue to build that movement and that awareness around, yeah, valuing people? I'm, I just don't know why we're not doing that.
0: You're working to change that in your role. I wondered what where you found the motivation to do so. You studied landscape architecture at Unitech, and now you're an academic, but you're also an advocate in many ways. Uh, what led you to this path um, in terms of your own interests in going there?
1: I had the same question this morning at breakfast, actually. Um, uh, I met with uh, one of the disability advisory members, Jade, uh, and we were just catching up to kind of think about how we can support each other's, I guess, advocacy spaces in the disability area and for the Māori communities. He asked me, you know, what was your why? Uh, and, And I guess just a brief overview in context i always bring this up because i want to put it into perspective uh you know i'm one of 72 cousins and i have more cousins in prison than i do with those with degrees you know so i've seen firsthand my family come in and out of prison that was one start in terms of you know social issues uh a lot of my family were on the other end of the you know wealth spectrum low socioeconomic in terms of poverty. And so for me, it was very, yeah, this is the reality of my life. But how can I, you know, start changing and breaking those stereotypes and those, you know, cycles that we kind of, that paintbrush that we painted with. That was opportunity for me, you know, when education is a pathway out of poverty, why not use that uh, as a way to not, I don't care about like what I do, but it's what I can do to serve my family and start changing that for like my little cousins that are coming up now. It's a generational shift, which is, I guess, for me, is really empowering. And so being exposed to and seeing the reality of my family and the struggles that they face. Now think about the spaces that I have access to, the platforms and people that I have access to, uh, to start shifting that and changing that. Uh, And when you can start to transform and change your own people, you know, you can start serving the community. And for me, that's really empowering, so... Yeah that's a bit of yes yeah, snippet into <laughs> you know wh- what's brought me here I guess uh in my why to what I do so yeah
0: you talked about the important uh, when you're talking about changing the situation you talked before about the importance of people's voices being heard everybody's voices being heard but particularly those who have the greatest need what are the other aspects that you think need to be put into place to change the situation in a housing sense but also in a wider societal sense and i know those two things are linked closely
1: Yeah, I guess just in terms of some of the work uh, that I've been doing, I'm really strongly passionate about is the, I guess, integration of, kaupapa Māori uh, processes, approaches, and values, and that's not given enough weight or enough value even within uh, both planning and legislation. It's not weighted. It's not given enough more, I guess, recognition. Uh, but now I think there's an opportunity where we start embedding those within those processes to inform what manifests on the ground. So huge, you know, huge advocate for this high-level stuff, uh, but ensuring that there's a connection with those on the ground um, is very important. And so, Oh, sorry? No, that's fine. I yeah. um, don't apologise.
0: <laughs> what would that look like in housing terms?
1: I think that some of the typologies in which, if we're speaking about housing, they're very, I guess, Eurocentric. And uh, a I guess multi-centric way we would think about the adaptability and uh, in terms of cultural constructs on which form and shape that house. So around tikanga and kawa, which inform where spatially things would work. And if we think about like uh, intensifying, uh, being able to maximise land use, it would be around I guess providing mara kai, so you know communal gardens or like utilising not not just a marae, but like a community hub, you know, or a space of where you're able to, I guess, grow with your community in social and cultural spaces. Uh, and it might not be just Māori focus, it could be, you know, diverse, but utilising other concepts around how we, you know, uh, Eurocentric approach to subdivision. That's, that's a way. So how do we move to my papakainga-focused, I guess, approach to housing? And that's spatially different to how a subdivision is organised. So there's all these techniques, but actually how do we shift from this idea of papakainga on Māori land, but how do we start uh, approaching some of it around on general land? So it's exciting as well, you know, the amount of opportunities we can explore. Uh, but how do we get other people out there to recognise the importance of how this can transform communities?
0: You grew up in South Auckland, which started in a sense as quite an aspirational area, but full of very individualised pockets of, um, you know, individually owned or individually rented land with little houses on them. As a kid, did you feel that that wasn't connecting your community together in the way? in a way that would be ideal. Did you sense that back then?
1: The thing is where I live is especially different. Uh, It's got a, we live right next to the park and so we also have a shared driveway with low fences and so for us, we knew that, we know everyone who lives next to us uh, and that's compared to the person who has a high fence we don't know as much. So it's all these kind of techniques and the way we design places that can really change that, that culture, you know, so my parents will go next door to the grandmother with all the kids, you know, take her some Hanging or something or, or she'll like drop off some kinners like like that is awesome you know we've spent 15 years there and now we've got some new neighbours and it's just yeah really those uh, those relationships that you can transform and encourage through design really good design.
0: So what made people put the fences up not just there but in many other parts of the city well, that, as well? Well <laughs>
1: that one was because that was the first house before it was changed yeah so they've kept the fence but like imagine if we just cut the fence in half mm. maybe we'd know that but it's like all these I guess as designers we think about, but probably not like you know our, our neighbors. They probably don't think about that. But it's cool that we can educate them why that's important. Um, yeah, because it's good. You know, you have babysitters next door. You know, you can look after the kids, and then like it's just like a community, and it's so, and because yeah, very whanau centered in that way. So
0: and the way you're describing it, it sounds as if that community. Evolves pretty naturally if the barriers aren't put in place yep. to stop it. Yet as a community, we've become really adept at putting those barriers up. Yeah. Why do you think that is?
1: I don't know. Not, every, I guess how do we bring awareness for these types of things to encourage for those private owners? You know, don't put your fence up. You know, maybe want the all the kids to grow up together, um, but that's creating a barrier. So I guess awareness, education, and yeah, I don't know. Baby oh. steps.
0: And I wondered if it was also um, attached to, you know, the housing shortage is partly um, related to the obsession people have with the property market Mm. Um, and that this concern for the value of your home um, means that people – direct barriers to try and insulate that value from whatever behaviour of their neighbours might diminish that. Is that mm. part of the equation, do you think, in a funny way?
1: Yeah, it sounds like some NIMBYs, you know, yeah. not <laughs> in your backyard. Like, we want to solve the, these issues, but not on the other side of my fence, please, mm. you know? Um, so how do we shift that? Um, and I think, yeah, again, relationships come into that.
0: Do you see, I mean, you're a, you're a landscape architect, so um, in practice you have... Some degree of control over the way these turn up, these things turn out, but at a level in the city and in other towns where we're planning subdivisions, are the lessons that you're learning in your research being are they um being heard um, at you know the council planning tables so that we're developing communities that not only work for maori but for um, you know other people who would benefit from a more communal relationship too?
1: Honestly, I don't think so, mm. um, which is why I kind of got into research, um, planning and policies, advocacy and design, because I wanted to understand in which all these are interconnected, yes, but how do they work and inform each other? Because that's vital. But actually, they don't. Like, they, it's still a very siloed nature. We do all this research, we got all this data, yes, okay. But how is that transformed in terms of those working on policies? Even politics, those who are making the decisions, actually, how are they well-informed with what's going on on the ground? And so we've got this disconnect both horizontally and vertically. So uh, there's a lot already going on out there, but we tend to reinvent the wheel all the time. So if we think about, for example, the urban regeneration stuff we've been working on, uh, to what extent does that inform what's going to be rolled out across the country? You know? What do you
0: mean by the urban regeneration stuff you've been working on?
1: Uh, so I've been a part of the... I guess, a uh, neighbourhoods team, uh, and we've been evaluating and assessing some of the work that's happened with Tamaki Regeneration Company out in Glen Innes. Mm-hmm. And so it's been interesting understanding, you know, the last 10 years that they've been operating. So we've got, you know, them as one provider or team working on that, I guess, area, but then we've got HLC working. And so if we're doing this research around assessing what's going on there and how do we do it well and what's been, you know, either really bad, how is that research informing what's being rolled out across the country? We're HLC
0: th- is Homes Land Community, yes, yeah. which is a um a subsidiary of Housing New Zealand basically
1: Exactly. It? Yeah. So it's I find it quite problematic if we're, you know, developing all these subdivisions, then researching it. But they're already started somewhere else and then we research it again. So why aren't we working a line where we're going through the same process understanding what's going on on the ground, so when they move to another, I guess, town, that we're, you know, taking these learnings from one area to the other and contextualising it because we cannot be cut, cutting, copying all these subdivisions and, you know, pasting them across the region. It shouldn't work like that.
0: Because the fact that you're involved in planning in Tamaki gives me hope when I hear that. Does it give you hope as well that you're in those processes?
1: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you. one day you wake up, you're like, I'm hopeful. And you go and do some work and you're like, yeah, I'm not hopeful. So, yeah, just the weather.
0: <laughs> I wondered that because, in a sense, what you're arguing for, which is greater housing mm. equity, exactly. makes complete sense. And the fact that you're having to argue it so hard must be frustrating. So how do you um, contain what might sometimes feel like pure rage and, <laughs> and carry on with the work um, that you're doing so well?
1: Oh, I guess, yeah, I hang out with a lot of people who also rage, so you kind of fuel each other's fire sometimes. And that's how it is. You be angry together, you have a coffee, you run about it, and then you keep doing the mahi. Um, And because you're not alone, I think that's really important. You're not isolated. Um, Everyone else is in the same waka, rowing the same direction. So, yeah.
0: We've talked a lot about home ownership, but I also um, know that your research has touched on the rental market and the instability of that. Mm. Could you talk for a moment about how that instability – um, affects some of the people you've been involved with in research and also people you know?
1: Yeah, I guess just from a personal experience, just being able to see, I guess, some of my family, you know, going to private um, homes because that's probably, you know, social housing's a long line. You could be waiting for months, maybe years. And so going to, well, hoping for the best, firstly, to get a, you know, a private market house is... Because if you're a young Māori and you maybe and you have kids and not a stable income, like you're already marginalised, you, you know, the likelihood is very, very low. Uh, and so I've been able to see some of my family go into that, but then they're wanting to sell the property or subdivide it, and so having to shift again and then shift again, because that tends to happen, you know, around, I guess, tenure security. And so when we saw, I guess, the recent amendments um, that was done, it was, like, exciting exciting where it's more I guess a partnership between tenants and managers and how can that been strengthened and just more protection around that because yeah it's a lot of instability if you've got young kids as well you know single mothers how are you supposed to be I guess act even just as a fano, a stable fano, if you don't even have these types of stabilities let alone economics it's such a massive complex system.
0: To those recent amendments um, to the way the residential housing market works go far enough to protect tenants and provide them with st- the stability that I'm not they sure. Have. I
1: think, yeah, I guess long-term, it would probably be those incremental changes too, you know, that way. But I thought it would be just the thing about baby steps. It's like, yeah, one step closer in terms of somewhat protection around um, if you're booted out. Oh, is that the right term? Yeah, so massive picture. So on a personal level, yeah, being able to, it's really hard. Really hard and also adds to that level of responsibility to try do something whatever that looks like lobbying advocating wherever whatever um but yeah in a professional sense it's it's difficult especially for a lot of young maori who are uh, either if they do have families have inherited stuff if they're lucky or have yeah mortgaged homes which could take forever uh you know it's it's expensive to live in the city already. So I live in Papakura. Have to train in. It's too expensive for me to live here and rent. And it's expen. Oh, life's expensive, really. You know, public transport, everything's so intertwined. It's just, it's again bringing that living to survive notion.
0: And living costs have escalated so greatly in Auckland that um, rental stress is just the hmm. uh, a tiny aspect of it in some ways, right? Yeah, or a fundamental past, aspect, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah,
1: it's like where do you start some days?
0: I wondered if you thought that as a society, we've ignored some of these problems for too long because we still are enthralled to this myth that we're, there's a level, level playing field in New Zealand. Um, obviously, you don't think there is a level playing field, but why do you think people want to kind of hang on to that at the expense of not dealing with the problems like the one you're describing?
1: It's interesting you use the, I guess, metaphor around a living playing field where we're still kind of out the gate and still trying to get a ticket to get in. Really, like, if you think about it, that's, like, kind of where I sit right now. It's like, oh, I want to be able to watch, too, whatever's on that playing field. And so how do we, you know, I guess, be more inclusive in terms of processes, in terms of representation on all spaces and acknowledge where everyone is given a voice and included in the process, whatever that looks like. Just want a ticket.
0: Yeah, and um, did you, I wondered if, did you come to a realisation that there was not a level playing field at some point? Did you ever subscribe to that notion that, you know, New Zealand was this land of equal opportunity?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, okay, we can't play on your field, we have to go home now, like back to wherever we come from. You felt that Yeah, young. yeah, yeah. Mm. Sometimes it's like that. It's like, oh, well, we can't hang out here, you know, not wanted sometimes, not acknowledged, not valued. So, yeah, yes,
0: it doesn't Sometimes. feel like your city.
1: Exactly. And I guess we always, in the Māori design community, we always think about, you know, when we don't see our faces in places, you know, not valued, which is really interesting in terms of the young Māori that we were working with. So in terms of wānanga and engagement process, we held one in the studio. Studio type setting, uh, one in a uh, marae over at Unitec and one at the surveying school in Dunedin. Uh, and... This is interesting because when you walk into the surveying school, there's non-Māori men framed across the whole hallway. And so it was, like, interesting where young Māori are walking to in a space like that in terms of institution. So when you create spaces and places that don't look like us or feel like us, you know, it's difficult to feel or be Māori sometimes. And Dunedin was really interesting in that space because the only time they felt was in their whare down there one place that really they could identify that and so it's on such a national scale it's important that you know we start seeing our faces and places whatever that looks like whatever the story is within the landscape um because you can shape and mold and contribute to the development of young maori through that
0: it's interesting before that you mentioned that part of your research took place in Kaikohi and that there was a greater degree of optimism there um you mentioned that that was partly related to the fact that housing up there is more accessible. Mm. But did that, do you think that um, the residents of that small town, the rangatahi there that you were speaking to, um, were more optimistic about life as well than their Auckland counterparts?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because even though their houses weren't physically great. It was more that they'd had a strong relationship within the community, and it was people that were home. You know, it was place, and that their connection with other people what made it a community, and they'd always had this desire to come to the big city and study and work. But at the end, like being able to go home, you know, uh, to support their family was always their dream. So very, yeah, I think because they've got you know a lot more stability and security there, so terms of housing, you know, their parents own their homes, you know. They'd be able to like spread their wings, well here it's a bit difficult when you're just trying to yeah find stability, whatever that means and looks like.
0: Because if you listen to the news, you would not necessarily perceive Kaikohe to be a place of opportunity, especially for rangatahi Māori.
1: They feel it is. Yes, of course, that's a huge opportunity up there. But we don't tend to, I guess, resource and fund places like that, like Kaikohe. It always gets sucked into the big city here, or Wellington. But there's so much opportunity there, and there's already a community that's just waiting to flourish.
0: What do you say to the Rangatahi Māori in Tamaki that you're speaking to, who may communicate to you that they're finding life pretty tough? How do you, if you think this is the right approach, convince them that it's kind of worthwhile to hold on to their dreams and to, um, you know, that there is a place for them, even though you've seen so much evidence that <laughs> mm, it's really tough for them?
1: Yeah. I think, firstly, the approach is just to listen. Like for me, it's always listen, just listen, um, listen and understand, and then think about, you know, being able to share your own journey is really empowering uh, and ensuring that they're not alone and instilling hope within them can change. So I feel like can change the world. When you instill hope within young Māori that the world literally is theirs, that they can do anything, uh, words of empowerment can really help them um, grow. And it's really that ripple effect that, that you can have on someone else through impact and story and experience. Being able to relate is more powerful than, you know, I've got all this, you know, I'm an academic, I'm all this, that's cool on one part, um, that, if that's their path. But your story and your truth can really help shape them and support them. Um, just in terms of being individuals and being young Māori and celebrating who you are and your identity and your whakapapa. And our ancestors have been here before us, you know. We're just, we're just another part of that journey and continuing to pave the way is really important.
0: We talked about frustration before and how you have an important support group of um, fellow Māori professionals in this area and you can vent to each other about the frustrations you feel. How do you communicate those frustrations to rangatahi Māori who you may not want to expose them to your the difficulties you face in your own life but you want to be realistic about what you're telling them to expect as well?
1: Yeah, you can pick and choose what you share which will support whoever the individual is um, but it's important that like, yeah, I've been lucky to be supported and navigated by other uh, multi professionals in multiple spaces, uh, but it's important to be, you know, a role model for them. So even just presence and support and monarchy, all of that just... Just having that available to them is important. Uh, and always thinking, like, with the access, oh, access to place and people you have, think about the opportunities you can enable for them. Like, that's what it's about. That's what – I'm just the conjurer. I'm like, here, yeah, you know, touching – being the people, connecting and stuff. Because it's really – you're just there to serve. For me, that's about – yeah, I'm just here to serve them and try to create a movement where young Māori aren't, put, you know – Painted with the same brush anymore and breaking stereotypes and just celebrating them. I want them to celebrate who they are and all that they are Uh, because for so long, you know, media and the stigma has shaped and, you know, really we've been inherited of all this society that kind of already set up a preconceived notion of who we are and who we should be. And I think it's time to change that.
0: And in your position now, you have the power to open up pathways um, institutionally or otherwise to those rangatahi maori to make those spaces available to them yeah
1: exactly you know like I said education is one way out of poverty but also entrepreneurship um, which is why we've kind of gone on that journey as well and business you know there's multiple ways but if you don't set an example a quote I learned this morning is you can't see what you can't imagine you know and so it's like start you know being able to provide that mentorship or navigate you know help other people navigate their futures Um, because there's so much potential out there that we don't uh, tap into so being able to find that potential and support and fostering that it's exciting.
0: What kind of a tamaki makoto would you like to see in 10 years if you um, you try and imagine your kind of ideal city?
1: Yeah so I would love to see a place where we have our faces in places there's no such thing as an empty landscape which has been quoted by a good friend of ours, uh, and so bringing that to life, unearthing those truths, you know whether it's the wards or it's the place on which used to be rivers, and all these narratives that have paved or occurred before you know our existence, what are those stories? Where did our ancestors travel? what was their journey? Um, where did people settle? All of these things, acknowledging and recognising our history for once. Yes, education is one part, but imagine telling that through our environments and shaping uh, the places that we live in. For me, that would be an amazing Tamaki Makoto. Even changing Auckland, we're going to change Auckland, we're going to Tamaki Makoto, we're going back to the original names of places. Um, that's what I'm here for.
0: <laughs> Jack, Ron it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you very much.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. It's been exciting and really empowering to uh, share my korero for and all of the above. (laughs) Kilda.
0: Kilda, it's really appreciated. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening to The Good Citizen. This podcast was brought to you by Britamart, the nine block precinct at the heart of downtown waterfront Tamaki Makoto, where good ideas and good citizens are always welcome. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back in another month with our next guest. Thank you.
1: For lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz. Kia ora
0: e te iwi, te here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off.